over the Mount of Olives. He traveled down the steep descent of the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley. Remember, he was riding on a donkey and he was on his way back up towards the city of Jerusalem. The people, they're gathering around. They're yelling. They're excited. There's a commotion happening. There's a lot of excitement going on. And what are they saying? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are super excited. They're basically declaring him to be the Messiah that is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. As he entered the city, the people were saying, who is this? What's going on? What's, what's, what's taking place? Who is this person? They were, the response came, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Luke's gospel gives us something a little bit interesting. I think it's worth noting. He tells us that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem as he approached. So here he is, the king of the Jews, coming into the city of Jerusalem. The people are gathering. They're praising him. But Luke tells us this. This is what Jesus proclaimed in Luke chapter 19. He said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children with you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation certainly jesus is presenting himself as king of the jews as the messiah here they will be rejected history tells us that in just 70 a.d a little less than 40 years later the romans would come down and conquer jerusalem and what jesus is saying here would actually come to pass So for our message tonight, for our study tonight, he's on his way. He's just coming into the city of Jerusalem. We're going to pick up in chapter 21, verse 12, and we're going to see him go into the temple, and he's going to clean house tonight. Look at 21, Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. It says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God, and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. That means they were angry. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and he went out to the city of Bethany and he lodged there. Well, Matthew's account seems to imply that Jesus entered the temple immediately after he came into Jerusalem. The other gospel accounts tell us that Jesus returned to Bethany right after his triumphal entry. So it's this cleansing of the temple probably occurred the following morning. It's probably he'd gone in, he rode into Jerusalem as king. He would have left, gone to Bethany, spent the night there, and he's coming back in the next day, and he comes into the temple. Uh, we get that, that from Mark chapter 11. Now, we should know this is not the first time that Jesus cleansed the temple. This is actually the second time he cleansed the temple. At the beginning of his ministry, he also cleared out the temple. And now three years later, the temple has once again become defiled by, let's just call it religious business. Religious business. Business had crept in. The leaders had changed the court of the Gentiles into a place where people could buy sacrifices and where they could exchange money. I imagine it looking a lot like a flea market or a swap meet. 
Animals in round, money changers, tables set up, busy, busy, lots of transaction happening. And the historians tell us, secular historians tell us that Annas, the former high priest, he was the manager. He was the one in charge of this enterprise. And he was assisted by his sons. What they did, what they did is they charged outrageous prices. And no one could compete with them. They had a monopoly. No one could oppose them. The Lord's temple became their personal business for their personal gain. They got rich at the expense of those people who came to the temple and sought to worship God. Here's how it worked. If you came to the temple with your own sacrifice or with money to buy a sacrifice, your money, your sacrifice, it would never be good enough. You had to use their money. You had to use their sacrifice. You see, if you came with your money, they would reject it because it was Roman money. We need temple money. We need temple coins. You can't, we can't take that here. So you have to exchange your Roman money for temple money. And it just so happens, we have a place for you to do that right there. We're glad you're here. We can't take that money. But just go right on over here to this table and they'll exchange it for you at some very high exchange rates. And even if you wanted to buy a sacrifice, they would simply say, well, you've got to exchange your money first. You've got to get the right money before you can write the sac- write, make the, buy the right sacrifice. All the while, they're charging outrageous rates and they're profiting from every step along the way. They would reject your money because it was not temple money. They insisted on the exchange. You say, wait a minute, what if I brought my own sacrifice? What if I brought my own lamb or my own turtle doves? Could I bring my own sacrifice? They would take your own sacrifice. They would inspect it. And because the sacrifices had to be blemish-free, what do you think they always found in it? A blemish. Why? Then they could discard your sacrifice. And what would they tell you? Well, we have sacrifices right here that you can buy. You want to be right with God, don't you? You have to make a sacrifice. So if you'll just, oh, oh, we can't take that money. If you'll just go over here to the tables, you'll exchange it there, and then you'll come over here and buy our sacrifice, then you can make your sacrifice and you'll be right with God. Does anybody see a problem with that? So after they rejected your animal, they conveniently had some pre-inspected animals that you could buy. Do you see the conflict there? Even today, people are still trying to make a buck off God's people, aren't they? They're still out there trying to get God's people to give them money for something. They're still out there trying to make them feel they need to do something to be right with God. In many cases, if you don't believe me, turn on the television set, especially late at night. But I want you to notice something I think is really important in this story Jesus who did he drive out of the temple who did he drive out all those who what does it say there it says who bought and sold you see we have this idea in our mind that he just drove out the people selling the stuff no no he drove out the people who were buying the stuff too who those who bought and sold certainly he took out the ones that were taking advantage of the people but he also drove out those who were buying why because they should know better they should have known better. Oh, but they didn't know. They're just doing what they're told. No, no, don't buy that. You and I don't do just, we don't just do what we're told. We follow the Lord and he'll give us discernment on what's right. You had to, it, 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 how hard would it be for you to say, I want to go to the temple and I want to make a sacrifice to my God. Then you get there and they go, oh, well, you, you can't use that lamb. You have to buy one of our lambs. Oh, we can't take that money. You have to buy one. Of, you have to, you have, when, at what point in your mind would you go, this is not right. I'm not partaking in it anymore. I'm not doing it any further. They had a responsibility. Do you see how, or do you see why that he drives both of them out? I don't want, you're, you're taking part of it. If, they were no, if there were no buyers, there would be no sellers, would there? They they're both have, they have this shared responsibility. Certainly the sellers, certainly Annas and his family for running this have a greater responsibility, but the people should know, they should have known this isn't right. 
Have you noticed sometimes churches can be all about the profit, all about the money? You should know by now that if you're part of our church, we don't sell anything to make a profit here. We're not here just for your money. When we have a missionary or a special speaker, I will let them set up a table in the back and they can sell little trinkets and things to uh, support uh, their ministry. I don't have a problem with that. I don't usually let them on, I don't know that, one time I had somebody that was going to take an offering and I was actually going to let them and I realized we don't have any offering baskets because we don't take an offering. So we couldn't take an offering if we wanted to. Our, our offering boxes in the back, if someone wants to give, they're free to give. But you can see how money can get in the way of those things. You can see how money would be the driving force behind something like that. We don't allow fundraisers. There's no farmer's markets, no flea markets, nothing going on. You don't have to worry about getting beat up for money every time you walk through the doors here in this church. And a lot of times it's good things. It's, do you ever get tired of fundraisers? I mean, sometimes it's like every single week there's a different fundraiser for this sport or that sport or this church event or that church event. It's like, wait a minute, when do we let God be God? And if he doesn't want them to go, there's not enough money, then they probably should stay home. I'm a big believer that where God guides, God provides. And if he wants you to be part of a ministry, if you're walking in his will, he's going to provide for that ministry. Not that, not that we don't make a need known. That's fine. If, you know, we're going to Brazil next summer. If you would like to support the ministry to Brazil, you can give online. You can write a check. Just write Brazil in the memo. But there's not going to be any special service. There's not going to be a special offering taken up. There's not going to be something, you know, we're not going to do anything to create all this interest. And there's going to be no video created to try to generate support. I believe that the Lord will put on the hearts of the people that are supposed to give. And they'll give according to what the Lord puts on their heart. If they don't, it's between them and the Lord. But it's not going to stop what the Lord's called us to do. And if it does, if, it, if, there, if there becomes a lack of money, then we're doing this for the wrong reason. And maybe he's saying, don't go. Perhaps it's dangerous. Perhaps I don't want you to go. Perhaps this is all something you created in your mind. I'm trying to tell you not to go yet. Well, sometimes we just keep forcing and forcing and forcing and forcing. Church should be a place where you can come and enjoy the word of God being taught. This place where they were at, the temple had become this production where you had to go through, jump through these hoops just to be able to make a sacrifice to the Lord. If we're serving the Lord and we're in the Lord's will, he will provide all that we need. And isn't it wonderful to say he always has in our church? Everything we've ever needed, he's always provided. We've never fallen short for anything. But why was Jesus so upset with them? Why didn't he just call a conference? Why didn't he just tell them to leave? Why, why was he so upset? Because they had taken a place where people were to come and meet with the Lord. And they turned it into a profitable swap meet for a few individuals by taking advantage of his people. Would you like it as a parent... If someone took advantage of your child, would you like it if someone sold them something way overpriced and, got, and they sold them a piece of junk for something that was way overpriced? You took advantage of them. That's what was happening to God's people. That's what they were being, they were being taken advantage of. Look at verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be, a, a, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. This is not what it's supposed to be. When Jesus called the temple my house, he was affirming that he was God. It's my house. It's my temple. This is my house. This is my temple. And it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. When he started this quote, he started from Isaiah chapter 56. Strangely enough, Oddly enough, the chapter in Isaiah 56, he, in, in, in Isaiah in chapter 56, is denouncing the unfaithful leaders of Israel. 
But let me read to you this whole section, at least verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 56. Because what you're going to see is he's talking about the people who are not Jewish. He's talking about the Gentile people. Verse 6 would say this, Also the sons of the foreigner, that's the Gentiles, who join themselves to the Lord, those who believe on the Lord, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenants, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. See, the Jewish people had made the, the temple just for the Jewish people. They, 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 the money changed the tables that had been set up in the area known as the outer court. It was also known as the, uh, it was called the court of the Gentiles. It was the place in the temple, the place on the temple mount that the Gentiles could only go this far. So if you weren't Jewish, you could only go to the outer court. That was where the Gentiles were supposed to go and pray with the Lord. They were supposed to go meet the Lord there. But this place of prayer had been turned into a marketplace and a dishonest one, literally, what does he call it? A den of thieves. This is church. This is how he's describing church. It's a den of thieves. Who would want to go to a place like that? Why is it sometimes churches that are just like this have the biggest crowds coming? Because everyone wants to see what's going on. Everyone wants to be a part of it. And you know what it really comes down to? Why were the people partaking in this? Because they felt, if I can just check the boxes, then I'm all right with God. If I can just pay my tithe, pay my, pay my amount, if I can make my sacrifice, then everything's fine with God. I can go back and do whatever I want for the rest of my year, and I'll come back next Passover or the next feast and do the same exact thing. The phrase, Jesus called it a den of thieves. It came from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. It's part of a long sermon that Jeremiah delivered at the gate of the temple in his day. And during that passage, he's rebuking the people for the same sins that Jesus saw and was judging them for in this day. Same exact thing. There in the court of Gentiles, with all the bargaining, with all the negotiating, prayer, how much prayer was actually happening? Probably next to none. It would probably be impossible. It, I can just imagine table after table set up, sacrifice animals to be sold, money changers, coins hitting the tables. I can just, it's probably loud. It probably sounds something like an old casino or something where all the, all the noise going on. How could a Gentile come in there and pray? The truth is they couldn't. There was no way for that to work. But you know what? It works the same way in our lives. It doesn't take very much to get distracted in prayer, does it? How long does it take you to get distracted when you sit down to pray, when you kneel down to pray? Put your head on the pillow and pray and see how long it takes for your mind to get distracted at night. It, takes a long, it doesn't take very long. I love our Sunday night prayer because it's small, it's quiet, it's, it's personal. There's not a whole lot of distractions, if any. But how, how easily can we get distracted? And here the Lord is saying, this is where the Gentiles are supposed to come meet with me. And you've completely disregarded it. You, you don't even, you, you let them come to the swap meet. And you let them buy, and, and you're just selling animals. God wants his house to be a house of prayer. Why? Why is that so important? Why, what's, the, what's the reason for that? Because true prayer is, an, is evidence of our dependence on God and our faith in his word. True prayer is evidence on your dependence on God. If you truly depend on God, you will spend time in prayer. You can, I can probably, if, if we were to ask you, how much do you depend on God? Eh, all the time. How much time do you spend in prayer? Well... 
a little bit, occasionally. I pray before I eat. Does that count? I ask him to make the chicken wings healthy for my body. No. How much time do you really spend on prayer? Well, I, I tell God what I want all the time. No, that's not prayer. That's making a request. It's a part of prayer. How much time do you try, how much do you spend discerning what God's will is for your life? How much time do we spend, Lord, I need your help here. You, can, can you please tell me what to do? Can you please give me some direction? Can you please show me the right truth? Can you please give me strength? How much time is that? Or is, is our prayer life just simply around me and what I want and what I need? You see, your dependence upon him can be defined by your prayer life because you want to discern his will. If your prayer life is only about you telling him what you want, it's rather shallow. I'm not going to say it's not a prayer life, but it's rather shallow. You see, our prayer life needs to be focusing on discerning his will, and it needs to be balanced around our faith in his word. But did you notice what else happened there? Before we go on, I like the fact that Jesus cleansed the temple and he did it by himself. What's that say about his personality? Now, so often he's portrayed as this meek, uh, humble man, which he is. But you know what? He didn't need any help cleansing the temple. He ran every one of them off. Now, this was not a sinful anger, but it was a righteous anger. He had no problem. People weren't, there, there was no one standing up to him. They were all getting out of there. He wasn't a wimp, in other words. He was a man who was able to, this is not right and I'm standing up for it. It's been well-defined meekness is power under control or strength under control. He was meek and his strength was under control. But when it came time to, when God's house was being defiled, he was able to stand up and say, no, that's not going to happen as he overturned the tables and drove the people out. Can you imagine what that scene would look like? But notice he also wants people to be helped. Did you catch what he did after he drove them out? Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came, came to him in the temple, and he healed them. You see, he wasn't so angry. So, sometimes in, in, in our life, we can get so angry. It's like, all right, let's pray. No, I'm too angry to pray. He, he, he didn't get to the point. This wasn't an anger that was sinful where, where he, couldn't, he, he, he couldn't do the will of God. This is an anger where he goes, I'm doing God's will by driving them out of this house. Now people need help, and I can quickly turn right to them and help them. The, the, the blind... The lame, they're coming to him in the temple. It says he healed them. There should be power in God's house. People should be having their lives changed. The power of God should be working to change people. Here's the amazing thing. Because they were unclean, they were blind, they are lame, which meant they were unclean, they could only go as far as the court of the Gentiles. They weren't allowed to go any further because of their illness. They could not get any closer to the temple. They could not go to the altar to make a sacrifice because of their uncleanness. So after purging the court of the Gentiles, of the merchants and the robbers, Jesus then ministered to the outcasts, the unclean, who congregated there. Isn't that like our Lord? All of you super religious people who are doing it all wrong for the wrong reasons, get out. All of you who really need help, stay here. I want to help you. What a blessing that is to read about. He healed them. He changed their lives forever. He touched them and healed them. Picture the scene with me. Jesus comes in. He drives everybody out who was buying and selling. All the religious people are running away from Jesus, but those in need are running to him. Those that are sick, those that are unhealthy, those that are unclean, they're being healed and changed. The religious leaders and even most of the people wanted a Messiah who would storm the Roman fortress there on the Temple Mount. 
They wanted the Romans defeated. But Jesus instead drives out the sin and the hypocrisy there in the religious leaders. And, then, and he then meets the simple needs of the people. Wow, that's amazing. He's purged the temple and heal, he purges the temple. He heals the people. That's exactly what we need in our life, isn't it? We need to be touched. We need to be healed. We need, we need our Savior. How do you think the religious leaders are reacting to this one? The scribes and the Pharisees, what do they think as they see the temple, the, the, their tables getting turned over, money on the floor, people leaving, sick people coming in? How do, how do they react? And look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yep. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. The chief priests, the scribes, they're watching this unfold. They're watching the wonderful things that he's doing. They saw the wonderful things, but yet they were indignant. They were angry. They were really, really mad. Why? Truth be told, he interrupted their cash flow. He interrupted their business. This is a busy time of year for them. They have a lot of animals to sell, a lot of money to change. This is where they probably make a big portion of their yearly income. And he just ran everyone off. He just overturned their tables. They were indignant because their pocketbooks had been affected. But they were trying to make it look like a religious problem by saying, they're calling you the Messiah. Don't you know they're calling you the Messiah? Here he is healing people. People are praising him. By the way, praise is also meant to be in God's house. And they came up to him. They confronted him. Do you hear what they're saying? What Jesus say? Yeah, sure do. Absolutely I do. Yep, you betcha. I sure do. And then what did he say? It's perfect praise in the ears of God. Do you hear what they're saying? Because what they're saying, they're praising me perfectly in other words, what they're saying about me because they were claiming him to be the Messiah, they're right. They're not saying anything wrong. These people have no religious training. They've never been to a seminary. They probably can't explain the finer points of doctrine. They're not even allowed in the temple, some of them, but their lives are being changed and they're pra praising the Lord for it. Wow. The simplicity in praising God. Very simply, praising him for what he's doing for them. Isn't that what church should look like? Not everybody's going to be a pastor a missionary or an elder, but everybody's life should be touched and changed by the word of God. You might not even be able to explain it. You might not understand what's taking place, but it should generate a praise in you. There should be something different in you as you study and you take God's word and you apply it to your life. It should create praise in you. Now, because we have so many Bibles in our house, we kind of look at it and go, well, I don't know if I want to read the Bible today or not. But do you realize there's people all over the world that would just take one page out? If they could just have one page to read, they would read it over and over and over and over again. Because it's touching them. They're praising the Lord for it. It ministers to them. They're giving praise. And what happens next? He leaves. Verse 17. He left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Bethany was just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. He probably stayed with Mary and Martha over there. We're not sure, but it's probably likely. Then in verse 18. Now in the morning... As he returned to the city, he was hungry. 
And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. He just told them, my father's house is a house of prayer. With Passover being in the spring, this fig tree should have contained leaves, and it should have, around this time of year, and probably sometime in April, it should have had figs on it, but yet they weren't ripe yet. They can still be eaten in the unripe phase, but they, weren't, they shouldn't have been fully ripe. Jesus uses this event to teach a lesson in faith to the apostles. For if they had genuine faith, he's telling them, in God, they not only would be able to do miracles such as cursing a fig tree and having it wither, but he also said they'd be able to move mountains if they had the faith. If they truly believed, they would receive whatever they prayed for. Now, I believe this is 100% true. He's speaking to the apostles, but it goes in line with God's will. The closer you get to the Lord, the more you want his will over anything that you want. So when, when, you're, when, you, when I was a kid, I can remember praying for a new bicycle. And maybe I didn't get a new bicycle. God didn't answer my prayer. Well, it wasn't God's will that I, that I got a new bicycle. My, my prayer needs to be in accordance with his will. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It needs to be his will, his desires that I'm seeking for. The Lord was teaching the importance of faith. He wanted their faith rather than their doubting. How many times do you come to the Lord in prayer and you doubt? Or maybe in this case, they're simply marveling. In other words, they're impressed with what they've seen, but there's no real faith. The nation of Israel had failed to exercise their faith in him. Oh, they marveled at his miracles. They thought it was really cool, the things that he did, but they did not have faith that he was the Messiah, or their faith would soon be turned away. But I also think there's another side to this. We need to understand this parable. We need to consider the time and the place in which it is set. The fig tree was a well-known symbol, and it's used throughout the Old Testament as the, as the nation Israel. It's referred to as a fig tree. And just as this tree had leaves but no fruit, Israel, the nation, had a show of religion but no practical experience of faith that resulted in other words they they had a they had a religion but there was no nothing resulting in a godly living israel had rules they had rituals they had religion but what was it they were lacking fruit this tree was a picture of the nation israel it looked like a fruit tree but when you got close and you examined it it had leaves like a fruit tree but there's no fruit there's no spiritual fruit there jesus wasn't angry at the tree he's using the tree to teach the disciples a lesson what does he want? God wants to produce fruit in the lives of his people. Do you know that means you and I? There should be fruit there. This is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our life, the fruit of the Spirit that Galatians talks about. He doesn't want people who have leaves and no fruit. You see, the presence of leaves on a fruit tree should mean there is fruit present also. Oh, it might be small. It might be at different stages. It might only be a blossom, but we know the fruit's coming. But if there's leaves and no fruit, what good is that fruit tree? 
It's not bearing what it's supposed to be bearing. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. If you have leaves and no fruit, like the nation Israel, you could be an outwardly religious person, yet missing an interpersonal relationship with the Lord. In other words, there could be leaves. Think of ourselves. We're, we're trees. Is there fruit on your tree or is there just leaves on your tree? Is there a picture of, 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 are you bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? Or is there just leaves that say, well, I go to church. I, I do what I'm supposed to do. I say what I'm supposed to do. I always talk nice in front of people. And, but privately, what's happening? The temple, as Jesus said, was supposed to be a house of prayer. And the nation, Israel, was to be a group of believing people who had faith in God. Israel was supposed to represent God to the rest of the world. The rest of the world was supposed to be so impressed with Israel. Wow, look at their God. We need, we, our gods are nothing compared to their God. We need to worship their gods. We need to serve their gods. We need to get to know their gods. What did Israel do? They took the court of the Gentiles and made it a flea market. We don't even want you. Not even welcome here. They were supposed to represent God to the rest of the world. Even to the Gentiles. When the Gentiles believed, they were to come to the Temple Mount and pray in the court of the Gentiles. That's where they were supposed to meet with the Lord. Instead, this place for the Gentiles was disregarded and turned into a marketplace. And Jesus began to show us the true heart of God as he made the place for everyone, as he drove out those that were seeking to take advantage of his people, and even drove out those people who were being taken advantage of to make it a place where those who were sick and needed healing could come and receive what they needed. Do you see the picture being painted here? Are you bearing fruit in your life? And, and, and don't look at someone else and say, well, I'm not bearing as much as them. It's not a time to compare your life to someone else's, but is there fruit being born in your life? And you say, well, how do I do that? How do I, how do I bear fruit in my life? The amount of fruit a tree bears is directly related to the health of the tree, isn't it? If you have an unhealthy fruit tree, it might not bear any fruit. Or it might just bear a little bit of fruit. It's directly related to it. The health of the tree is directly related to the care and the effort that's put into that tree. If you plant a fruit tree in your backyard and do nothing, what's the chances of it growing up to be a good, big, fruit-bearing tree? Probably not very good. You've got to put some effort into it. You've got to, put some, you've got to, you've got to do some things to it. You have, to, you have to take care of the health of the tree. Do you realize we're just like that? We're the same way? If you want to be a good, healthy fruit tree that bears fruit, do you know that you need to be pruned once in a while? Perhaps every season, at least once a year, there's going to be a cutting back, a trimming away in your life. There's something where we've got to cut back. Yes, it's all the branches and stuff. We've got to cut it back. Maybe the Lord's got something to cut back. It's, it's the end of the year, going into 20, ending 2018, going into 2019. Is there something that needs to be cut out of your life? Is there a pruning that needs to be happen in your life to make you healthier? Do you realize to be a healthy tree that bears fruit, you must protect yourself from the vines, from the parasites that seek to destroy you? What would happen if we let a vine grow wild on a fruit tree? Wouldn't be long before it overtook it, would it? It wouldn't be bearing fruit. It wouldn't even be having leaves on it. It would fall apart. In our lives, I think those vines, those parasites, those are the things of the world. Those are the things that want to creep into your life that want to take you over. You see a vine growing up on your cherished fruit tree in the backyard. Do you let it, do you let it go or do you go cut it off? You go cut it out. Yet sometimes in our own life we'll let the vines grow wild. Oh, I like that one. That's, just, that's my pet vine. We're, we, I'm going I'm to trim the, I'm, let's trim this side of the tree, but I'm not going to trim that side of the tree. Let's trim the side everyone sees. 
We'll keep that all cleaned up and looking nice. But this side, I'm not going gonna, gonna to let that vine grow for a little while because I kind of like it. No, cut it off. It's going to destroy your tree. The world will do the same thing. It'll creep in. It'll steal your strength. It'll steal your nutrients. It'll steal your focus. It'll take, it, take you away from all kinds of things. Do you also know if you've had a garden, if you've planted a fruit tree, do you know you have to fertilize it? Do you know the type of fertilizer you use matters? What if I put pool acid on the roots of my tree? How's it going to work out for the tree? Or chlorine or poison? What if I spray my tree with Roundup? How's it going to work out for the tree? Probably not very well. What do I need to fertilize it with? I need to find out where the tree's deficient and give it what it needs. Do you realize your life is the same way? What should you be fertilizing your life with? The Word of God. This is what you've got to pour in there. This is what you've got to learn. This is what you've got to study. This is what you've got to apply to your life. It's the same thing. If, if your life looks like an unhealthy fruit tree, perhaps you need to be cut back. Perhaps you need to change the fertilizing, the things that you're putting in. And perhaps you need to get rid of the stuff that's choking you out from the world. And then you can then become a fruit-bearing tree. Now, here's the cool thing. Healthy fruit trees bear fruit without trying, don't they? Have you ever heard an apple tree groaning? Got to bear this apple. I got to get this blossom out. No, what happens? It just happens. It just comes out. Why? It's the byproduct of what's been put into the tree. If it has what it needs in the fertilizer, if you've protected it from the parasites and the vines, it has everything it needs, what happens? Boom. Fruit's the natural reaction. Sometimes as Christians, we try to, all right, I got to make fruit. No, you can't make fruit. Focus on what you're putting in. Focus on the environment that you're in. Focus on the things that you can control. And the fruit just happens. It just, it just starts. And you might be someone who's a brand new Christian. You know, you ever, I, I can remember, you ever, you ever go to Lowe's and you buy, you see the fruit trees, there's like one apple hanging on a little tiny tree. It's not even, it's, you know, it's not even going to make it. It's just going to fall off. And sometimes new Christians, that's, that's you. Just one little apple is all you have. But you put that tree, and next year it might not even bear any apples. Then the following year it might bear two apples. Then it might bear four apples. But if you keep tending that, that tree and you keep taking care of it and you keep fertilizing what it needs and let it grow, eventually what's it going to be? It's going to be a huge apple tree bearing all those apples. Your life works the same way. I love how the Lord uses agriculture to explain so many things to us. It's so simple. The nation Israel had become like this tree. Had leaves on it, but no fruit. Had the appearance of religion, but no relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know that Christians can be the same way? We can have religion in our life. We can look like we're a fruit tree. But there can be absolutely no fruit bearing in our life. Or there can be only a little bit of fruit bearing in our life for years and years and years. Well, how do I change it, Rob? I just told you, prune back the things that need to be pruned back. Cut out what needs to be cut out. Fertilize, find out what needs. Fertilize with the word of God, the teaching of God's word. Make sure it's getting the right nutrients that it needs. Get rid of the things that are choking it out from the world. And then the fruit just naturally happens. Don't focus on bearing fruit. Focus on the care of, the, of yourself. Do you see the difference? In the same way, your life can represent that tree. It will directly reflect the fertilizer, the trimming, and the protection that it's receiving. I think it's probably safe to say we all could bear more fruit. I don't think anybody could say, oh, no, I'm full. No more fruit for me. That's good. I'm good here. No, we're good. No, no. I think we could all look at that and go, you know what? There's room for me to bear more fruit. And, and to do that, I might have to 
well, I might have to change this thing that I've been doing. I might have to change the way that I'm thinking. I might have to change this thing. I might have to, or if you're the fruit tree with the leaves and no fruit, that should scare you to death. What did Jesus do? It's dead now. You should go, wait a minute, I don't want that in my life. That's not what I want. I want to bear the fruit. So as we say goodbye to 2018, are you willing to seek the Lord for any changes he may want to make in your life in 2019? It's a great time of year to evaluate your life, to evaluate your family. What's your goals? What's your direction? What's your family mission statement? What do you, what do you want to accomplish as a family next year? As a, whether it's a, a big family or a little family, what, what are we doing here? Why are we here? What is our purpose? We sat down recently in our house and we took our last name, M-A-H-O-V-I-C-H, and we made... Uh, the M stand for something, the A stand for something, the H stand for something. All those things made, and it be, kind of became, we, we've been playing around with it, it's been, kind of become our family mission. These are the things that we're striving for. These are the things that we're trying to achieve. This is what we're, 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 we, wanted, we, wanted, we want our family to become. It's a good time of year to look at that and go, what, is, what, is, what fruit am I bearing in my life? And are you bearing all the fruit that you can? Or is there something hindering your fruit? Do you see what we're saying here tonight? This is a chance for you and myself included, to look and go, all right, Lord, what do you want from me in the upcoming year? And he just might ask you to put some things aside. He might tell you to lay some things down. He might tell you to change some things. He might tell you to start some things that you're kind of nervous about starting. He might, st- might want you to do something that you go, I-, I don't know if I can do that, Lord. He goes, yes, you can. With me, you can. You see, whatever it is, we have to be willing to go to him and say, Lord, have your way in my heart. Because he will provide all that we need if we're serving him. Let's pray. Father, may our life be filled with fruit of the Spirit, Lord. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, kindness, self-control. Lord, may they be abundant in our life. Lord, if there's an area that we need to address, would you convict us of it? May we respond. If there's an area that we need to water and grow, if there's an area that we need to fertilize, or would you give us the, exactly what that area needs? Perhaps it's a verse. Perhaps it's a promise. Whatever it might be, may it be our desire to be what you've created us to be, fully and completely, dependent upon you, Lord, may none of us be trees with leaves and no fruit. Even if it's small, may you multiply it and may you grow it. May we put forth the effort where we need to. And may you meet us there along the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.